This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been podcasting now for a couple of years. Before that, I just was doing individual therapy, and I've been doing that a long time. But I started podcasting because I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to those who might already be in therapy or had been in therapy and just simply would be interested in another mental health professional's viewpoint but also to those of you who might for the first time have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression or you're running into problems in a friendship or a relationship that you've never had before, or maybe you're having a problem with a certain stage of your life. I started blogging when I was going through Empty Nest myself, and that really helped me because in a way it was, I was just journaling about my own Empty Nest, so it was very helpful. But there's some of you out there who might never darken the therapist's tour. So perhaps you'll give this podcast a listen to see what someone like me might have to say and how therapy could actually be helpful to you. Today, we're going to look at texting. And does texting make you feel more connected or are you having struggles with it? I found an article by a woman named Christine Schoenwald where she talks about six ways that she believes it can cause problems. But I'm going to add my two bits and talk about how those problems can be avoided. Now, I know there are generational differences in viewpoints on texting, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I have in my show notes the actual link to Christine Schoenwald's article if you'd like to read it. So I think there are five things you can do to protect your relationship when you are involved in texting. You know, I had a couple who would only fight via text. He'd be upstairs and she'd be downstairs and they'd be having at it, texting back and forth. And I tried to get them to argue in my office and let me hear what it was like. And they just had to show me their phones. It was really strange. But then we're also going to talk about protecting your family and five ways you can do that. Our listener email today is from a man from Africa, which I'm having growing readership in that continent, and that is just outstanding. But his wife had been diagnosed with depression and refuses treatment, and he didn't know what to do. So I'll try my best to answer his question. So let's talk about the now very familiar and for some almost addictive habit of texting. How often do you call out to somebody, well, now text me. That request would have sounded crazy 25 years ago. But now it's the way many of us communicate. You know, I like to text. It's easy. It's fun. It often makes things a lot more convenient, opening up time in my day to be more productive or to just binge on Netflix or whatever I'm doing. However, any form of communication has its pitfalls. Even speaking face-to-face can lead to misunderstandings, incorrect assumptions, hurt feelings, or worse. I'd be out of a job if that didn't happen. With texting, we have the ability to reach out to someone about a particular issue without the time commitment of an entire conversation. It's also true that at times receiving that chime indicating an incoming text can feel a little intrusive. You may feel obligated to check your phone and then to reply, 
even if that means taking your attention away from what you're currently involved in, or worse, away from the person you're currently talking with. My son and I had an interesting conversation about the difference in his millennial generation and mine. He said, you know, Mom, when you were growing up, if someone just appeared at your door without having called to ask if that was okay, you would think that was pretty rude. And I think, well, yeah, unless they were a really good friend or something. But yes, that would be rude. He says, my generation thinks it's rude to call. They would rather text first. I thought that was interesting. And I've tried to remember it as my own texting, especially from my younger patients and friends, has been a pretty regular part of my life recently. But let's turn to Christine Schoenwald's article and talk about the problems she sees. She states, nonverbal communication prevents us from communicating properly because there's no body language, facial expression, or vocal tone. You know, sometimes you can come off trying to be funny, but there's a good chance you'll come off as insulting or mean or hurtful. With all the emojis in the world, there's no guarantee that the readers of your text are going to interpret your text in the way you want them to. Of course, that's true of any communication, isn't it? But I think because texting is so quick, the responses come and go quickly, and so it's easy to have impulsive emotional reactions. She also states women text to bond, men text to exchange information. That's an interesting thing. I don't know if that's based on research or not, or if that's just her opinion, but you might ask your friends about that. Ask your guy friends, why do you communicate via text, and ask your girlfriends why. See if you can find that that holds up. Then she says, every text conversation is a power struggle. Every time you send a text message, there's a possibility that you'll be ignored. It might be that the person you texted put his or her phone away, but... Again, there's a lot of room for miscommunication, and so many people agonize over the time that it takes someone to text them back, when perhaps it has meaning, but in many, many cases, it doesn't have any meaning. But the longer you wait, the worse you feel, and the more you'll be on edge when you don't get a response, and that is a setup for anxiety and even depression. Then, of course, if you have it set up on your phone that the red receipt is there, that senders can tell if you've actually read one of their texts or not, that can really increase a sense of agitation. It's a similar feeling with Facebook's seen checkmark. (laughs) Both of those can sting if then you don't get a response, at least in a fairly appropriate time. But again, it may mean that they saw your message but are too busy to respond Not that they're having some kind of negative reaction to it, or they're purposely ignoring you. The fifth thing that she says is that texting creates bad liars. Oh, I didn't see your text. Really? How could you not see it? You check your phone 50 times a day. Then another lame lies. Oh, did you send me a text? That's so strange. I never got it. Really? Yeah. So a lot of times people will hide behind those excuses. And that doesn't feel good at all. Now, this one has been backed up by a lot of research. People who spend an average of two to four hours a day bit over texting compresses and damages your spine. There's something called text neck that I just found out about. So her point is texting all the time is bad for our health. Interesting point. So I want to point out a few other things about texting. I want to talk about can you get addicted? 
What's fascinating neurologically is that dopamine is released when you're awaiting a response. And what does dopamine do? It's known as the seeking neurotransmitter. It's released when you're seeking something out that you anticipate being pleasurable. The more dopamine, the more seeking. Coupled with the other pleasure neurotransmitter, you can become addicted, actually, biologically. (laughs) And then, of course, when those three dots appear and then they go away, that can feel really bad. If you're a parent and texting your child, the lack of response can feed already hard-to-control anxiety, escalating into texts to best friends or even a call to the police, and all because your child's phone is dead. Once again, that happened a lot to me and my son. Or they're at a park, a concert with friends, and a parental message is just not going to be a priority. Yet distrust is distrust, fear is fear, no matter how old you are. So all of that is interesting, sometimes troubling, and something to be worked out as texting increasingly prevails in our everyday lives. But you know, that's not what I'm most concerned about. I wonder if people realize how much innate power the act of texting in front of someone also has on a relationship when you're in their presence. I had a young female patient who was miserable here at our local university. She was from another state and said she couldn't find any friends. She was, however, extremely close to her mother. I asked her what she did as she walked between classes, and she said, oh, I usually text my mom. I asked, well, I wonder if the person right next to you walking up the steps and going into the same classroom might be someone to say hi to. She smiled and said, I never thought of that. But let's face it, the very physical act of texting detaches you from your immediate surroundings. You're hunched over your phone with your face down. Eyes are diverted from the world around you. You aren't available to anyone. Maybe you laugh at something someone sent and text them back without telling whoever is with you what's going on. It is a private conversation, but it can be very alienating. You know, there's a poignant sadness when I see a family or a couple supposedly out for quote-unquote dinner, and every one of them is on their phones. I never know quite what to think. Are they uncomfortable, unhappy? Is there nothing to talk about? Do they not realize that time is a gift? Is the game they're playing or the scores they're checking that important? Now, I'm a Cowboys fan, so I'm always checking my Cowboys, but not when I'm out to dinner with someone I care about. You know, maybe you are that family or you are that couple. And of course, we do have the problem of people hiding their phone and changing their password. It can be one of the first signs that something's awry in a relationship or there's somebody else. I'll hear she used to have her phone out just lying around and I noticed that wasn't happening anymore. She took it with her everywhere. When she took a shower, I picked it up. I was using his phone to Google something and saw their texts. So discovering texts has become a prevalent way for people to find out about affairs. Even if it's not a sexual relationship, maybe it's more of an emotional affair, but it's a secret because you don't share the conversations with your partner. It's what I call deceit by omission. So what could be the rules of thumb for some healthy texting? I mean, if you've listened to self-work, you know I'm into what you can do about it. We can prevent a lot of problems. We can manage them. Not every problem has a solution, but it's important to be proactive, right? So first, let's talk about couples. Here's some five rules that I would highly recommend following if you're in a relationship that you want to be healthy. 
first, if you wouldn't show what you're writing to your partner, then it's better not to write it. I had a man and woman come in many, many years ago, and I think way before texting, actually, and he'd had this relationship with this woman who he said was his best friend. His wife was sitting there, and I said, but did you tell her about the relationship? And he said, no. I thought it would hurt her feelings. I said, well, in order for me to continue working with you, you have to detach from that relationship. And he said, I don't want to. And I said, okay, that's fine. That's your choice. But as long as you are talking to that person about things that you don't talk to your spouse about, that's only going to continue and maintain the problem as it is. So texting has made that more available and easier. My second suggestion is if you're doing something together and you get a text that you want or need to respond to, or you think of something funny or something you forgot to do and you want to text someone else, explain to your partner who you're texting and what it's about. Let them in on it. I do this a lot because a lot of my patients text me about changing appointments or whatever, and I get some texts from friends, and my husband doesn't text at all or very rarely. He'll respond, but he doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't send too many of them himself. So I'll always say, hey, I'm texting Janelle or I'm texting Jennifer just to let him know what I'm doing. Here's number three. If you get an inappropriate text from someone else, show it to your partner. Talk together about how to handle it. I would say this for direct messaging on Facebook. I would say it for any kind of messaging where your partner may or may not see it automatically. Try to solve the problem together, and it will be a huge boon to your trust. Number four is use texting as a way of reaching out every now and then to your partner in a loving way. You know, don't have fun with your friends via text, but only use it with your partner to ask them to pick up a dozen eggs. Look for humor. Look for things that they'll laugh at or they'll think are funny or send them a link that you're reading. So use texting in its really best way, which is to promote a sense of engagement and connection. The fifth is to recognize that if you show someone else a text your partner has sent you, they could easily feel that you're violating their privacy. So think about it before and if you do. I have patients who come in and want to show me texts from their partners, usually their argumentative texts, actually, But I ask them to think about it before they do, because I want them to know that their partner could feel betrayed. Now let's talk a little about how you can help your family and or your children with texting. Again, especially looking at that addiction aspect and detachment aspect of texting. Number one, establish times when technology takes a back seat. No Tech Tuesday, Phone Free Friday, or dinner time in general. And just have it understood. You may get some pushback at first. Oh, mom or dad, all my friends do this, or nobody else makes their kid put their phone away. I've had people take tech-free vacations with one another. And, of course, this means the adults as well can't bring their iPads or whatever. You take one for safety reasons, but that's it. It can be really illuminating. Here's the second one. Put away your own phone when you're with your kids, at least as much as you can. They are watching and learning from you. 
My toddler son used to hide my beeper, now quite a gadget of the past, but the message to me was clear. I need you here with me, present, and in my world. Here's number three. Talk with your kids about what you expect if you text them. Of course, it depends on their age, but having certain agreements and those agreements being followed is a way to build trust and show respect. And they need to understand that your expectations may be different from the ones of their friends. Number four, remember that reading your child's texts is like listening into their private conversations. And the older they get, it's important that they have their own identity away from you. Now, of course, obviously, if you have reasons for trust problems, then I understand completely. But... If you're going to read your child's text, I'd give them a heads up that you're going to do that, that you feel like that's your job as a parent, especially if they're older children. Here's the last. Make sure your kids understand that even if they think the messages they're sending are private, it just takes a screen grab for that conversation to be shared with others. Remind them and teach them that the safest thing to do is never write something to someone, no matter who it is, that they wouldn't be okay with the entire world seeing. I've had all ages tell me that they've engaged in sexting. It's turning around to bite them in the butt. So just be careful. Someone you think you're very close to, especially if it's a virtual relationship, may have another agenda. Our listener email today is about some of the helplessness you can feel when someone you love is struggling with depression and doesn't do anything about it. This man writes, I'm worried about my wife. She was diagnosed with depression but has refused to continue therapy or medication. Her mother, who lives in another country, insists to her daughter that she's not depressed, which I think aided her in not continuing treatment. She behaves very much like she's hiding her depression. In public, she's the life of the scene, always laughing, but I can feel her pain as she's my best friend. Talking about treatment is a no-go area, and her family has rejected the idea that something's wrong, so I'm alone. Do you have any advice or practical steps that I can take? So I say hello. I'm honored that you're reaching out. It certainly sounds as if your wife's mother still has a tremendous influence over her, which in this case isn't positive. There are a couple of things that come to mind. One is that somehow she recognizes her mom's power over her. There's a book called The Emotional Incest Syndrome about children, even adult children, whose job it is to please a parent. I'm obviously not sure if that's the exact dynamic from your description, but you might look into it. You can also talk to her about what it's like for you to watch her inward struggle. Instead of saying, I think you're depressed, you say, it's so sad for me to see you smile and laugh at parties, but come home and be very quiet or whatever it is that you see. So you talk about yourself rather than talking about her. Or you can go into therapy yourself, and you're modeling for her what you're asking her to do. Or the two of you, of course, can go into therapy together. That way, perhaps she'll not see it as her problem, but that something's not working in the relationship. 
If she's been diagnosed with depression, my guess is that she has some classic signs of it. Losing or gaining weight, sleep problems, a depressed mood, low energy. However, she's determined to somehow try to hide it when she's in public. If she more fits my description of the syndrome of PhD, being highly perfectionistic and not likely to express any emotional pain, then perhaps if she either listened to some podcasts on PhD or read my post about it, that could be beneficial. But it's certainly hard to watch someone you love struggle. Good luck to you and to her. I had this in my own life personally with my mom who had severe anxiety And the only thing she would do for it would be take medications that she became more and more addicted to. So it was very hard to watch her do that and know she was doing that and feel so out of control to help her, even though we tried to talk to her. She eventually did listen, but it was in many ways too late. So if someone you love tells you that they're concerned about you, please listen. Or perhaps some of these suggestions that I've made to this man will be helpful to you if you're watching someone you love struggle. Thank you so much for listening to Self Work Today. I can't believe this is episode 111. So hard for me to realize that that much time has gone by. The numbers of self work are growing. I cannot believe how many downloads there are a month now. I thank all of you who've left ratings and reviews, especially those written reviews are really, really important and about the best way I have, except for you telling your friends and family about self-work. It's the best way I have of trying to promote self-work as something helpful. There are plenty of ways of getting in touch with me. You can always email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com and I'll be happy to answer your questions or my website is drmargaretrutherford.com. You can subscribe there and get a weekly newsletter, which includes my weekly blog post and weekly podcast. So that's a great way of keeping up. And now you can also join a Facebook group that I've started. All you have to do is go to facebook.com slash groups slash self work. I believe we all have a bit of wisdom to share with one another. And that's what I try to promote on that Facebook page. It's a really fun, diverse group. Lots of wisdom there. So I hope you'll think about joining me. Thanks again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.